Please pray with me. Everlasting and sustaining God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping with the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Somewhere in Brazil, a detective chases two brothers suspected of a crime down the stairwell of an apartment building. He discharges his firearm, striking one of them in the leg, but they're still running, one brother supporting the other. Now, this building has nine floors, but oddly, when they reach the ground level, there are more stairs to descend. And as they keep running, breathless, the numbers on the wall ticking down the floors of the building, they arrive at the ground floor again, only to find that there are still more stairs. Furthermore, none of the steel exit doors have handles, and they're all sealed shut. This is one weird building, the detective mumbles to himself, demonstrating his keen powers of observation. He is a detective, after all. The chase stops now, all three men out of breath and more than a little confused. The detective pulls a pair of keys out of his jacket and drops them down the stairwell. A few seconds pass before they fall from the stairwell above them, confirming that they are indeed in an endless Mobius loop with no means of escape. A bottomless staircase, something out of a surrealist author's nightmares. A few hours pass in this story, and a few things become evident. First, without medical treatment, the man with the gunshot wound is going to die. Second, there is a vending machine on the second floor landing that is packed with bottles of water, shrink-wrapped sandwiches, bags of chips, ramen noodles, and so on. And no matter how much they consume, it miraculously keeps on refilling itself. And third, there truly is no escape from this place. This is one weird movie, I mumble to myself, also demonstrating my keen powers of observation. I think I'd have made a good detective in another life. I pause the film at this point to go snack on a can of chunk light tuna, a staple of my diet since they put the state on lockdown last week and closed all of the restaurants. I'd found this bizarre movie which is called The Incident on Netflix one night. The director, Isaac Esbon, is an up-and-coming talent from Brazil who specializes in films reminiscent of Rod Serling's The Twilight Zone. This one definitely fits the bill. As I unpause the film, it fast-forwards 35 years to find the two surviving men still living in the stairwell, a world of concrete where the garish overhead lighting never turns off. The walls are covered in black, sharpie, little lines marking the passage of time. Now, the detective has completely wasted away, a shell of his former self. It's clear that he's really let himself go. We find him crawling along the stairs like a worm, half-naked and filthy, shoveling cold noodles into his mouth, most of them getting stuck in his long, tangled beard. His home, if you can call it that, is a growing collection of old soda cans and rotting food. But the other guy, his name's Oliver, I think, 
He's making a decent go of it. He's kept himself in shape with a daily regimen of exercise, running laps up and down the stairs, doing crunches and push-ups and so on. He's made a little shower for himself by hanging bottles of water from the ceiling and poking holes in them with a sharp pin. And he trims his beard with a pair of nail clippers that he found in his dead brother's backpack. Now, speaking of which, much like the vending machine, the contents of the backpack also appear to be replenishing themselves. A collection of random artifacts that he uses to build a home here in the stairwell. A book, an old iPod, a ball of twine, a sweatshirt, the nail clippers. All of these are multiplied, stacked, mounted, and arranged to create walls, bedding, even crude artwork. The backpack for Oliver becomes an object of veneration, the foundation of a strange religion, praying in some gibberish language before a makeshift altar with the backpack sitting upon it every day. He then retrieves its contents like it was manna from heaven, his daily bread. Yeah, this is a weird movie, all right. As I watched it, though, it all felt strangely familiar, a little too close to home. Aside from the occasional errand to the grocery store, I've been locked in my house for a week, maybe longer. Time has already begun to stretch out and distort like Play-Doh in the hands of a toddler. How long have we been here? Five weeks? Two days? My house, while larger, has already begun to feel eerily reminiscent of that stairwell. A little claustrophobic, a limited array of potential activities, a pantry filled with ramen noodles and canned food, canned tuna mostly. I feel like a canned tuna sometimes these days, or maybe a sardine crammed in with other sardines, but you don't hear sardines complaining, probably because they're very small and their voices are very quiet. When all of this started, the spreading of the virus, I was a little worried about food. I didn't know how long the grocery stores would still be open or if fresh food would be available, and it's not like I have a magical vending machine that replenishes itself. Now, fortunately, I'd already stocked up on non-perishable goods, not because I saw all of this coming or because I'd hoarded anything, but rather because a few weeks ago, when everything was still relatively normal, I decided that I was going to try a strictly canned food diet for a while. It didn't entirely work out. My, my work involves a lot of lunch meetings, and I can't exactly go to the Glen Oak Cafe and pull out a can opener and a tin of Chef Boyardee. And most people think that eating nothing but tinned food would kill you dead anyway, but with all of the sodium. But there actually are a lot of healthy alternatives. Canned vegetables, if there's no added salt, are just about as nutritious as fresh ones. And canned tuna is actually pretty good for you. It's got omega-3 fatty acids, high-quality protein, and plenty of vitamin D. It's also low in cholesterol, cholesterol and sodium. It's filling. It's delicious. You can eat it right out of the can. The stuff gets a bad rap. It's been said, give a man a fish and he can eat for a day. But teach a man how to fish and he'll be dead of mercury poisoning in three years. 
well, I'll take my chances. If tuna fish was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. Now, Jesus and his followers ate a whole lot of fish. I imagine that's probably what they ate most of the time. What with Jesus traveling with a retinue of professional fishermen. At least seven of the disciples plied that trade before they met Jesus. After the resurrection, when Jesus says that he's hungry and he asks for something to eat, of course, they give him a dried fish. And years later, when Christians were forced to meet in secret in the midst of Roman persecution, they marked their gathering places with a crude drawing of a fish. In Scripture, the mundane act of eating, a bestial act, really, attains great spiritual significance. Food is imbued with a purpose beyond raw fuel or calories. In the desert wilderness, the Israelites received manna from heaven. Sustenance, yes, but more than physical sustenance, because it's a reminder of God's promise to liberate them and shepherd them alive to the promised land. And even the act of preparing it becomes a kind of ritual because the portions and the methods of preparation are divinely prescribed. And when Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fish while it's more of an all-you-can-eat affair. It's still a holy act, a symbol of God's power, even as the act of communion is a display of God's tender vulnerability. These are holy rituals in which the Lord provides both physical and spiritual sustenance. And as a brief aside, I hope you all will consider providing some food, too, to the local food pantry or to PADS, in this time where people need sustenance. Sometimes the Lord provides through us. Jesus famously said to the devil when he was tempted in the wilderness that man does not live by bread alone. Food is important. It sustains our life. But a can of tuna fish is not enough to sustain our spirits. Certainly not in times like these when we're more or less locked in our own homes and our lives have been put on hold as if they were a movie that someone decided to put on pause. Our actions, when repeated, become routine. And when they are imbued with a greater purpose, our routines become rituals. And the holiest of these rituals become sacraments. Consider once more these two men trapped in the stairwell. The detective, he's, he's aimless, lying on the concrete floor, stuffing noodles into his mouth with a vacant stare. He is a man without purpose, without meaning, without ritual. Oliver, the surviving brother, is a different animal. He, he has a daily routine. He has religion, faith in something beyond himself. He has little rituals that he performs throughout the day, some of them as simple as brushing his teeth, others with more spiritual significance. But his movements from the time he wakes until the time he goes to sleep are imbued with purpose. He lives as though he's going to get out of this place, as though he has a future. It's more than a matter of keeping a schedule and establishing a routine, though I've tried to do that myself while I've been stuck in the house. 
I wake up every morning at 8 o'clock. At 8.01, I hit the snooze button and sleep for another hour. Around 9 o'clock, I make some coffee, and I tell my son for the hundredth time that he can't play video games in my office while I'm working. And after arguing about this for half an hour, I start working around 9.30. I spend the next seven or eight hours writing, answering emails, making phone calls, and sitting in video conferences where I worry about my posture and how my hair looks, and I try to cover up the fact that I'm still wearing the Voltron Defender of the Universe t-shirt that I've been wearing for three days. It's a routine. But I'm trying to make rituals out of ordinary routines. I offer a little prayer before I work, remembering that the work matters, that people are counting on me. A walk around the block is more than exercise. It's a reminder that there's still a world outside my own head, that there's still air in my lungs. And watching my boys run ahead of me, laughing, is a kind of ineffable joy. And I don't eat merely to survive, but rather to keep up my strength, so that I can still be of service to my family and my church and my community. That's one of the important things about Sunday worship. Even if it's something that we only do once a week, it's one of the most important rituals we have. Here we remember who we are and what we're about. Here we remember that God loves us and sustains us in more ways than we know. Here we receive our manna. Here routine becomes ritual and ritual becomes sacrament. We remember that on the night of betrayal and desertion, Jesus took bread and blessed it and shared it with the ones he loved, even as he gave his very life to teach us how to live. Not just to survive on canned tuna, or God forbid, to be a canned tuna, but to live, and to live abundantly, even when our lives feel like they are on pause. As a wise old fisherman once said, fishing is not an escape from life, but often a deeper immersion into it. May the same be said for these strange, surreal days in which we live. Amen. <laughs>